Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. All right, buddy, let's do this. Right, it's John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I'm here with former Major League shortstop buddy, Biancolana. Buddy, what's going on, buddy? Not much, John. How are you? Oh, no, pr- pretty good, man. Everything's going well, man. Uh, you know, buddy, you're, you're involved in, uh, I guess, the Zone Training Program, which you can find on zonetraining.net. Um, what, what got you involved in this? Well, um, as you probably know, I was uh, barely a marginal major league player, but I had a zone experience in the 1985 World Series in which everything just slowed down for me and um, really wasn't thinking much, and my swing became more fluid, my play at shortstop was more fluid. I hit 73 points higher than my career average. I played airless at shortstop, almost won the MVP, and then 18 months later I was out of the major leagues because I really didn't know what was taking place in my brain that allowed my full ability to rise to the surface, but I knew it had to be repeatable. So to fast forward, along with a neuroscientist, my partner and I, Stephen Yellen, have quantified what takes place in the brain when an athlete is playing their best, and we have a systematic way to teach it through drills and concepts that are taught on respective athletes playing field whether it's golf course a basketball court or or baseball field we've worked in many professional amateur sports so very revolutionary and and uh, very very exciting venture for us now and i tell you it's great that you're able to share your experience to end up you know hopefully to help out other other people now uh, checking out the website www.zonetraining.net uh two things it says right up at the top there that i think i found very interesting um you you talk about like experience that players have number one it says you know when they felt great during warm-ups but had difficulty producing and the other one was, uh, you know, felt they have more talent than they are using. Um, how, how through your program are you able to, uh, you know, maybe change the, the mental perception of, of, of players? Well, when an athlete is playing their best, typically they'll describe that experience in the following three ways. One, they'll talk about how they had more time, things slowed down, time slowed down. Two, that they really weren't thinking. And three, that their emotion was more fluid and effortless. And... All of that is a byproduct um, of a certain process in the brain that creates that experience and creates fluid motion. 
there are many ways to teach mechanics in sports regardless of the sport. But there's only one way that the body can produce fluid motion. And it's all through, through the brain and how information gets to the motor system um, on time. It needs to get to a, a part of the brain called the cerebellum. I don't want to go too deep into it here. But a, a part of the brain called the cerebellum, when the signals that one is processing gets to the cerebellum right on time, uh, one will experience time is slowing down and, and it will feel as if you're not thinking and, and your fast twitch more subtle muscles in the body become more enlivened and start to play the role that we want in motion. The fast twitch muscles are the ones that if you're a pitcher, the ball is really coming out of the hand like butter on a hot knife or you're really finishing your pitches well, um, you're hitting your glove side down in the zone or a hitter, you're able to make a last split second on adjustment on a ball that's cutting in on you or tailing away. And we, we do all that by, by drills that the, that the athlete uses while they're playing. We call it the fluid motion factor that must be activated in order for the body to produce repeatable fluid motion. So that's how we do it. And uh, I certainly love, uh, it's very gratifying to, to be able to touch athletes' lives and, and, and help them become more consistent, which we're doing. No, absolutely, man. And I'll tell you, one thing that interests me about it, and I, I do I, I do got to ask you this, how much does a player's talent have to do with a lot of the things that you're doing? Like, you know, you talk about somebody that just has an immense amount of talent and just some, some somehow just mentally can't, uh, you know, maybe like freeze up or something when it when it comes down to, uh, you know, performing what they're capable of. But uh, is, it, is it something that's really open to all talent levels? Like, in, you know, in other words, can a player that may not have – uh, enough God-given talent be able to uh, improve their game to a point by a lot of the stuff that you're, you're, you're teaching? Yeah, absolutely. The whole key is to get as much talent out of somebody as, as they have, and, and, and that's what our, our program does. And, um, you know, even a lot of, you know, in the early going of bringing this out, we've gotten, quote, problem cases, players who are struggling, but our program is not just for problem cases, as people in sports will realize, and they're starting to realize that you know, for instance, uh, you look at Alex Rodriguez and Barry Bonds and Robinson Cano last year, also Prince Fielder. These are great, great players. And these processes of the mind are occurring naturally, but they really don't understand these processes. Processes. They're just able to do it, and that's all that matters. However, these are these same four guys I've mentioned, there are the, you know, a boatload of other guys that, as great as they are, they've gotten the postseason, and they haven't been as good. They haven't been as productive. And the reason is that when pressure is turned up and you really don't understand what must happen in your brain, what happens is the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is the intellect, starts to engage too much so, and it delays these signals that move into the motor system and the cerebellum. And that's when these players have broken down. So it doesn't mean they're not great players. It means they really don't have a systematic way to access their full ability, and, and that's, that's they've broken down under pressure. No, it's very, very well understood, man. Once again, it's John Piel. I'm here with former Major League shortstop buddy Bianca Lana. Now, uh, one, one thing that I, that I, that I find it do you, do you, do you notice that this is a common occurrence? Um, in in your, in your opinion, do you think most players go through something like this, or, or is, is this a minority or maybe half? What do you think of the percentage of players that, that have issues like this that should be addressed? Well, again, there, there's one way that fluid motion is is. <clears throat> occurs in the body. Well, find that way and are able to teach it. it. It is for every athlete. However, you know, most athletes think they're doing just fine, and, and they are. However, I'm of the mindset, okay, you're doing fine. Can you do better? 
you know. And, um, you know, so there are many athletes who are very comfortable and they're, they're not necessarily wanting to do anything different that might make them better um, until they become, you know, just, com- you know, uncomfortable and, um, you know, then they're basically forced to do it or their competition starts doing it. So, um, you know, we do a lot of work in golf and typically golfers, um, you know, there are no guaranteed contracts in golf. So golfers are pretty hungry to find an edge. So um, our program is, is uh, you know, we've got a good foothold in golf and, and we've got some really good things going on in the golf world. Nah, that's awesome, man. Now, you know, kind of segueing this into your playing career, First of all, 1985. You know, you were you know you're kind of a uh, they, a role player. Um, you know, you didn't really play the most games at shortstop that year, but in the postseason, you, you stepped it up like you like you mentioned. You performed at such a great level that you could have been named uh, MVP of the World Series that year. Uh, tell us a little bit about what do you what do you think changed from you as the player before to you as that player in the 1985 postseason. I thought you were going to say what changed before and after. Nothing changed after because I went back to being the same marginal player. But you're right. In that World Series, something did change. And I have to, um, you know, everything happens for a reason. And, and, um, you know, I really truly believe I was given that experience in the World Series. It's this zone experience so that I would, and then have it taken away from me, um, not by anybody's wrongdoing. But just so I would go searching for it, and that's what I've done. And I always knew that this is a direction we were headed in to figure out how to teach that experience. But um, what happened before that series, I have to tell you, I was, you know, as a kid, I always knew I wanted to play in the major leagues. And even as a major league player, I, you know, I wanted to be in the major leagues. There's no question about it. Um, but I never once thought about playing in the World Series. It was, it was one of those things that was too big an event that you just can't imagine yourself in, in that situation, you know, maybe you're a broadcaster, maybe you can't imagine yourself uh, broadcasting the Olympics as, as the host, whatever it is, some big event um, in your profession that just seems too big and, and that's for somebody else. Well, that's how I felt about the World Series. It was such a big event, I never thought about it. Well, all of a sudden, I was sitting in my locker before game one of the 85 World Series. And we had about 20 minutes to go before I had to be in the dugout before ABC, you know, uh, or the, the PA announcer would call our name, we'd jog to the foul line, and ABC, who was broadcasting the series, would have a camera in our face, and we'd be seen by millions of people all over the world. So with about 20 minutes left to go, I was sitting in my locker, and all of a sudden, this massive wave of nerves or fear, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, the bottom line is it's fear, hit me. And it was so intense, and usually when I get nerves for a game, I go and I mood alter by making myself a sandwich, but with 20 minutes left to go before being the dugout, I knew, you know, I didn't have time. I wasn't going to do that. It wasn't an option for me. So I sat there with this fear, and really it was the first time in my life. I remember saying to myself, you know, this is really scary. This is really, really big. And I started to have the thoughts of, geez, what if I let down George Fred? I let down the fans of Kansas City, the media, my family. What if I make an error that costs us a series? Those type of thoughts that nobody likes. Um, I was starting to have those type of thoughts, and, and just felt this tremendous fear, but... <clears throat> It was really, again, the first time that I'd ever really sat with fear and realized, you know what, there's nothing to fear. And what it did, I just got to the other side of it, and I think it just really completely empowered me and really freed me up emotionally to allow my full ability to rise to the surface during that series. 
No, you absolutely did. And I'll tell you what I find interesting. And, you know, I don't I don't I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but something like that, that you're able to somehow change and just, you know, be be kind of in a zone, you know, per se. It is well, how 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 is that something that you're not able to apply at another time? Well, because you really don't know what's happening. You know, it's okay. not uncommon for an athlete to have a zone experience. What is in co- what is uncommon is for them to know how to repeat that zone experience, and that's why you know it set me off when when you know 18 months later I'm out of the big leagues and not <laughs> not making anywhere near the money I was making in the big leagues and. And, uh, you know, life can uh, throw you for a loop sometimes. I was thrown for a loop, and it was through that, that being thrown for the loop that I went searching for, okay, you know, this great experience, this great feeling that I had in the World Series has to be repeatable. And, you know, my life's journey since that time, along with my partner, Stephen Yellens, has been to figure it out. And um, I can honestly say from the bottom of my heart, we have figured it out. Now, that, that's awesome, and I tell you, you know, if you're able to apply, you know, to to many people, I mean, you you, you could you could save you could save people's lives. I mean, this is this is you know, it's incredible. It's, you know, the research and everything that you've done with this, I think it's a phenomenal job. But uh, once again, it's John PLM here, a former major league shortstop, buddy Bianca Lana, and. You know, we're going to get back a little bit into that 1985 team that you got a chance to play for. A, a very a very good Royals team, a team that, um, you know, I, I've written about before was kind of really the last part of, of what was a, a very good decade that the Kansas City Royals had, really kind of led by George Brett with a lot of other uh, contributing players on that team. Uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about, from a perspective of being somebody that was there, what was it like being part of that team? Well, it was great because I, you know, our, our team was built around pitching, uh, speed, and defense. And um, thank God because uh, I was a pretty good defensive player but didn't hit much. So I fit in pretty well. And I had some pretty good offense around me so they, they could afford to carry my bat. Uh, which these days, you know, they want everybody to hit. So uh, it'd be tough for me to play these days. But, um, you know, we had our, our, our team was led by George Brett and Hal McCray, both tremendous leaders who played the game really as hard as uh, just about anybody I've ever seen. They you know, they ran hard to first base all the time. They sweat hard, breaking up double plays. They took the extra base. They re- It's where I really learned to play aggressive baseball um, and just take nothing for granted. You know, just playing very hard and, and making sure that, uh, you know, you're, you're busting up double plays and not trying to hurt anybody, but, but playing very, very hard, which is how I like to play the game and it's how I think the game should be played. So... It was uh, great to play with those two guys. And then um, as far as playing behind a you know, pitching staff, it was just second to none, led by Brett Saberhagen, who won the Cy Young Award that year, and also the MVP of the World Series. Um, and, you know, Buddy Black, now the manager of the Padres, Mark Gubazon, Charlie Liebrandt, and uh, Danny Jackson was our starting five with Dan Quisenberry, the closer. So we had tremendous starting pitching, and, you know, it was just a pleasure to, to go out and play defense behind guys that you knew were going to, you know, shut down the other club more times than not, and, and that's what they did, and we were able to do that in the World Series. It was our starting pitching that really gave us a chance to come back three games to one and win that series, so it was just a great great place to play, great guys, uh, great city, you know, it's, Kansas City's kind of a well-kept secret. I've always said if it were 10 degrees warmer during the winter and 10, warm, 10 cooler during the summer, it'd be... You know, it'd be like San Diego. It'd be just a tremendous place to live. So, but that's not the case. But still, a great city, great fans. 
Nah, and I tell you, man, just looking back at that team, I mean, they, you know, it was, it, you know, you had, uh, you know, a Saber Hagen who was 21 years old, uh, you know, a, um, uh, you know, a couple, couple of younger players, but for the most part, you had a lot of older players led by a 32 year old Brad and, you know, Hal McCray was almost 40. Uh, it, it looked like, it looked like really the 1985 season might've been coming into considered maybe one of the last chances that this Royals team had. I know it ended up turning out that way, but was there, was there any, uh, any sense in the clubhouse that the way things were constructed with the players that you got that, uh, let's say a couple of years down the road, the team could look, you know, a lot different. Um, you know, if there was, I wasn't aware of it. It, it certainly it wasn't something I was thinking about. I was just trying to survive in the major leagues, you know, and doing the best I could do. Um, I'm sure, you know, management may have thought about that. It may have been the reason that in spring training they made a trade um, for Jim Sundberg. Don Slot was our catcher in 84 and a good one. <laughs> but I think they felt with our young pitching staff that if they brought in a, um, a veteran catcher such as Jim Sundberg, a very good defensive catcher, that it could put us over the hump, and it worked perfectly. It was a you know great trade by John Sherholtz, and uh, things worked out. So maybe maybe management saw that, um, you know, whether I, I didn't, if other players did, they may have. Yeah, and it's understandable. I mean, you're being a player there. I mean, you're just obviously focused on a task at hand. You know, play play the best baseball you can and win some ball games. So you know, I understand how you how you you, you might not really think that way. But um, you know, you had a chance to play for uh, for the late Dick Hauser, who uh, you know I, I think was kind of one of the, the underrated managers in baseball, particularly at his time. Uh, tell us a little bit about playing for Dick Hauser. Well, Dick uh, was very even keel. Um, he was fiery, but even keel. You know, you, you know, he was really the same guy who, uh, you know, you couldn't really tell um, whether we won or lost by Dick's uh, persona when he came in the clubhouse after game. You know, he would always preach words of encouragement during tough times. Um, he's not a guy that was was going to get overly close to his players. Um, you know, he showed respect to guys like Brett and, and McCray and, and some of the veterans. Um, but, you know, gave young guys a chance. It was, it was good to me. I thought he did a really good job managing in the World Series. It was the first time that he had to manage not using the designated hitter. And I thought he did it flawlessly, uh, which can be difficult, you know, with the double switch and making decisions as to when to hit their pitcher or leave him in. I thought he did it very, very well. And um, nothing but good memories and, and, and from Dick Hauser. His number's retired in Kansas City, and rightfully so. No, absolutely, man. Now, you know, just a, a little bit more about you. Later on, you get a chance to manage in the, uh, you know, in a, in a couple different leagues, but most notably uh, locally by me over in Lakewood, the Lakewood Blue Claws for the Philadelphia Phillies organization. Tell us a little bit how, how about the transition into managing and maybe your your opinion about uh, your experience as a manager. Well, I... Um you know, I always thought I wanted to manage. I, I got back into baseball. I was out of the game for a while um, by, by, by choice and then felt the, the desire to get back in after a period of time off the field and, and got back as an infield coordinator with the Tampa Bay Rays and then I managed for them for a couple of years and then I um, went over and managed for the Phillies. So, um, you know, managing in the minor leagues, um, you know, I think for, for someone who wants to get to the big leagues, you know, as a coach or a manager or a coach, I should say, or even a manager, it may not be the best route. I think it's ideally better to specialize as a hitting coach or an infield coach or maybe a base running outfield coach um, to get to the big leagues as a coach. But 
um, you know, I just wanted to manage, you know, I, mean, I don't know if it was an ego thing or not, but um, I love coaching third base because it was the closest thing to playing. You've got to make quick decisions, you know, as a minor league manager to coach at third base. Uh, most minor league managers do, I should say. And I love that. You know, you've got to know the arm strength. You've got to know, read everything that's going on in the field and make your decisions. So, um, you know, I love that aspect of it. And, and, and helping kids. Um, but I'm more of a teacher than, than basically managing a group of players. Um, you know, I like to get close to individuals and, and really work at bringing up their full ability and identifying those those little nuggets that can that can um, really impede someone from being the best they can be. That's kind of my, my special niche in sports. Matt, uh, that, that, that really sounds awesome, man. Now, listen, before I let you go, man, I'll just give you one little chance to to plug zone training and let the listeners know, you know, how to get a hold of it and, you know, if, if anybody's interested in, uh, you know, uh, finding more about it. Sure. We're at zonetraining.net, and uh, we work with athletes and to date 13 amateur sports and even with musicians we've quantified what takes place in the brain when an athlete is playing their best or a musician is playing their best and we're able to teach it through drills and concepts that are taught on the playing field it's basically a mental training program based on neuroscience it has nothing to do with psychology we're able to trigger certain responses in the brain so that uh, basically your best motion rises to the surface uh, you're not completely blanked out by no means you're very very alert very very relaxed um, and a lot of wonderful things happen. So it's all proven by science. Uh, I can do work on Skype, phone work, et cetera, and, and certainly one-on-one in person. So I appreciate the plug. No, that's awesome, man. Listen, buddy, I want to thank you for having some time today, man. Best of luck with everything you're, you're doing, and uh, keep up the good work, man. Hopefully I could uh, speak to you sometime in the near future. Good, John. Thanks, thanks for having me on. All right. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. And that was Buddy Biancalana. Buddy played for the 1985 Kansas City Royals, a team that won the World Series that year. Um, something, uh, you know, listen, he's, he's gotten into the zone training, and, uh, you know, he talks about his experience in a World Series that really changed his life, that he kind of just went into his zone and became just a different player about how he felt and stuff like that. And I think that's something that's, uh, that's phenomenal. And, you know, if you guys get a chance, www.zonetraining.net, uh, you can find more information, and, you know, hopefully the guy's uh, – helping and you know saving lives as far as young players that uh hopefully can uh can make those right adjustments which i think you know when you get down to a level like that it really is mental once again john pielli pass ball show mtr radio network thank you guys for tuning in uh you guys want to be part of the program at all just uh feel the need to tweet at me at john underscore pielli that's John underscore P-I-E-L-L-I. I will reply to every tweet that is uh, that mentions me during the course of my show. Any questions about anything, you got any input as we continue to make this an interactive program right here on the MTR Radio Network. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. 
listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Uh, of course, getting on to everything going on in the world of Major League Baseball. A um, couple different things. We get into the whole uh, Bases Empty blog thing. Of course, you can follow that on uh, johnpielli.com. Uh, basically something that I contribute to every day, talking about something going on in the world of baseball. And you talk about a couple things going on, really, in the in a game right now. And you see three teams that a lot of people had uh, such a big expectations for. Teams that were expected to really be not at the top of their division, but at the top of the league. And they've all floundered at this point. They've all struggled. They all have not gotten the job done. And that, of course, is the two teams in Los Angeles, the Dodgers and the Angels, and, of course, the Toronto Blue. Jays and uh, listen let's be honest I mean if you're doing predictions at the beginning of the season tell me you didn't have at least one or two of those teams uh, winning the division I mean you know most baseball fans a lot of them probably had all three teams going to the postseason Uh, you know I think there were people were kind of lukewarm when it came to feelings about the Toronto Blue Jays everybody looked at the moves that they made bringing in guys like Jose Reyes and Josh Johnson and Mark Burley and of course Ari Dickey from the Mets you know, some people conversely said that it, this is a team that is taking in players from losing teams. So how are they going to get good when they weren't a winning team themselves? So really, the team that had the most doubt coming into the season was the Toronto Blue Jays. But uh, now listen, I, I mean, uh, logically, you could have picked them to win the AL East. I don't think there was a, a thoroughbred out there going into this division. I think all five teams were considered to be good and could compete and could perform at a high level. But at the same time, I don't think anybody was, uh, was, was saying that one team was definitively better than the other. So a lot of people did have uh, the the Toronto Blue Jays. We're going to put that on hold, and we're going to welcome to the program uh, Damon Hollins. And uh, Damon, of course, uh, you know, played with the Tampa Bay Rays, amongst other teams, in the early part of the 2000s. Damon, what's going on, buddy? John, how you doing, man? What's going on? Hey, how's everything, man? It's good to have you on the show, man. Oh, no problem. I appreciate you inviting me and having me. Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. Now, uh, you know, listen, so start getting into now what you're doing with uh, with the whole coaching thing. Man. What are you up to nowadays? Uh, on the field with the Kansas City Royals, co- down here coaching uh, in Surprise, Arizona, coaching the young guys in uh, extended sprint. About uh, two and a half weeks, I think we got the draft coming up, and after that we'll be heading out to the uh, short season. I'll be going to the... The Pioneer League in um, Idaho Falls. Ah, that, that's cool, man. So now, now in the position you're in, it's kind of like a like a roving thing. You end up going to just a different uh, different teams, I guess, and different groups of players, just kind of coaching as you as you move forward. Yeah, it's not really roving. Um, the last couple of years, I've been in A ball. Uh, this year, I got reassigned to rookie ball. Actually, um, I kind of asked for this year because I just had another uh, daughter. I got three little girls, so I asked if I can be uh, Congratulations, close man. to home this year. Yeah, thanks a lot. Kind of close to home this year with uh, with my family, at least for a year, and see how it plays out. 
And um, like I say, you know, just down there trying to help the young guys out. And it's actually uh, it's actually a little different from being in um, A-ball. You know, these guys are a little more uh, eager to hear what I say and um, actually all the coaches to hear what we have to say. And, um, you know, they they seem to be a little more, uh, pay attention a little more if you can, you know, understand what I'm saying. No, absolutely, man. And I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's important, you know, you can, you know, the more different people that could kind of get in your ear as you're a young player, I'm sure you can make the relation to yourself as a young player, you know, in the late nineties coming through, you know, uh, you know, a couple, a couple different uh, minor league systems. I, I, I do think that players, uh, you know, kind of without admitting it would like somebody to kind of just feel what they're feeling and kind of help them get to the next level. I think, right. you know, you're, you're in a great position that you can kind of see it from that perspective now. Well, definitely. Well, uh, you know, one thing I try to be is relatable to the players of uh, that we have of all ages. And, um, you know, we got players, obviously, from Latin America. we got American players. And, you know, this, this day and age player is a little different from, you know, what we came up as, as, as I came up as a player. And, you know, you have to... You have to definitely, you know, be there to, uh, you know, sometimes hear what they're going through in life and, you know, not just as far as on the baseball field, but like I say, in life and they may be having different problems in certain areas. And you, like I say, you just have to kind of be relatable to everything and be able to just sit back and listen and, you know, not bombard them so much with uh, baseball stuff. You know, when I came up, it was just base, baseball, baseball. And now, like I say, it's a little different, but, you know, you have to be there for them. Now, do you think when you played, you could have benefited for somebody like that? Oh, definitely. And, and, and when I played, we did we did have those type of guys. We have uh, there's such a, a diversity as far as coaches nowadays. You have a lot of a lot of coaches nowadays that didn't play as much baseball, and you know they they're just you know smart people that know the game and been around the game. When I came up, you know we had guys that played for a long time and. You know, now they were in the coaching ranks, and they had a lot to offer as far as what to expect, what to what to what to look for in this game at every level, as far as uh, minor league, big league. And now, like I say, you might get a guy that really never played, but been around the game and just a smart a smart person, and 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 knows you know as far as knows what to to look for, and knows what to you know do in certain situations, and you know that's important too. So. You know, you get a wide range of uh, different things coming from uh, every perspective, and, you know, it's good. Yeah, that very well was. Once again, I'm John, John Pielli. I'm here with uh, former Major League outfielder Damon Hollins. Now, you had the opportunity to go through uh, the Atlanta Braves farm system. And and, I, and I'm really from following over the last, like, 20 years. It seems to be one of the more well-run kind of uh, organizations they continue to spit out good major league players are able to fill in in certain spots uh, were you able to see any of that as you were coming up through the system it, did it did it uh, did it affect you in any sort of way to notice that 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 this this team really kind of uh, got their players to the next level or was that something that you didn't even say well looking back you know um, <clears throat> we definitely had uh, uh, we had so much talent in our organization from minor leagues to the big leagues. And, and looking back, we started our run, I think, in 92. That was my first year over there. So, you know, just being able to come up under the tutelage of, of uh, you know, obviously Bobby Cox, the manager, and, you know, the impact that he had on the whole organization, John Strohos and those guys, was it was great for me 
to you know come up like I say under those under those guys in the minor leagues we had from the big leagues Dave Justice and those type of uh, guys Marquise Grissom Javier Lopez all those guys you know some of those guys like I said Javier Lopez he was in the minor leagues when I got there and he was able to go from like double A triple A and on up to the big leagues and obviously have a great big league career but. I mean, that definitely impacted me, you know, as a player, you know, to do things the right way when I got there, and I think it helped me out a lot. Yeah, I definitely think it did. Now, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you kind of a two-part question, man. second part might be a little tough. Uh, coming up, you know, around 96, 97, 98, you're playing in AAA Richmond. Did you feel like, you know, at, at any point you were kind of blocked to get a chance to play in the major leagues? Because based on your numbers, you know, it seemed like you were kind of ready. Did you feel like based on the players that were up there, you kind of held back a little bit? Uh, definitely. <laughs> I don't want to say held back, but you definitely had to be, you know, you had to be good. And, you know, back then when we came up, you definitely got developed in the minor leagues. Uh, looking back on it a little bit, we had guys that, you know, that stayed healthy. And, you know, being in the big leagues and getting to the big leagues is all about opportunity. You know, somebody go down or somebody get traded somebody, you know, for whatever reason, you know, anything come up, you know, that that second, that, that guy from the minor leagues or whoever the bench player will step in and hopefully make, you know, make the most of that opportunity. But definitely looking back, you know, it was tough. You know, we had pretty much superstars probably at every, at every position. So, you know, what do you do right there? All you can do is, you know, you know, kind of have a, you know, vision and, and tell yourself, hey, if it, you know, if it don't work out with this team, you know, hopefully it'll work out with, with another team. And, you know, I just try to keep keep myself ready. And, you know, as far as the minor league goes and AAA, I, I started my first year AAA in 96, I think. It was just, you know, it was just definitely, you know, hurdling those obstacles as, to, as they came up. And that's all you can do as a minor leaguer. You can't really, you know, control you know what, what's going on you can control all you can do is control what you can do and that's playing hard every day and, and coming to the ballpark ready now nah, very true man once again john Pielli here former major league outfielder damon hollins now you did you did get a, a decent chance in uh, 2005 or 2006 with the tampa bay rays you know you're pretty right. much up there the whole season you got a chance to perform a little bit put up some decent numbers uh but right. uh, you know tell, tell us a little bit about your experience in tampa bay and you know everything that was going on those couple years Oh, it was it was it was awesome, man. It was you know, in oh five I got the call, I think May second and um, you know, I just you know, that was my first time getting to play regularly up and getting an opportunity just like I talked about and it was kinda cool because Lou Pinella was the manager. Uh the only thing that sucked is we wasn't that good as far as our record shows. Um but just to get the chance to play up there was a dream come true and uh oh five, like I said, I you know, I started. I had a, a great start, and uh, it kind of sucked to not be able to, you know, sustain that momentum that I had. And it just, you know, like I said, when you're trying to get the best of the best every day, you know, they're going to make adjustments to you, and it's up to you to make those adjustments back. And obviously, in '06, you know, it was, it was, up to, it was all, it was all on me, and I, I got the chance to make the team for the first time in my career. And you know, just it was it was unfortunate that I couldn't make those adjustments in the big leagues and, and sustain the the momentum that I had from the uh, the prior year. But you know, I have no regrets. You know, I, I I worked my butt off, and you know, at the end of the day, I can look in the mirror and be like, you know, I I did everything I could to you know, <laughs> like I say, do my job up there, and uh, it just didn't work out as far as the offensive side of things. No, but I tell you, man, you had a chance, you know, playing for Lou Pinella, and I think I think everybody knows Lou is a very high-strung guy, a guy who wants to win. 
How right. how was it from your perspective to see Lou in a situation where he was just literally managing a team that just wasn't ready to win? How did he? How was he able to handle that? It sucked, you know, because you know, obviously we all know how passionate he, he is and about the game, and you know to go through those those losing streaks, it, it definitely wasn't a, a good, a fun time as far as my first major go around in the in the big leagues. You know, to be to be on the losing team when it wasn't it wasn't fun, but at the end of the day, it was a great experience for me. To, to, to get to get to play for a guy like that who obviously was a great player and then to come back and, and be a manager it was it was awesome and uh you know I wish we could have we could have uh righted the ship back then but like you said we just wasn't ready to win and and um even the next year playing for Joe Madden that first year or two you know he, he went through his struggles but obviously a great baseball mind and um and like I said I wish I was even I was I was a little more ready, you know. I still was, even though I was older. I, I hadn't had the major league experience to, you know, to make those adjustments. And you know, it takes time up there, man. And it's not an easy thing to do. And you know, all the guys that that do it the right way, my hat definitely goes off to those guys because it's a tough game. And you know, you definitely have to make adjustments. Yeah, no question. And of course, after the 2006 season, you go over to Japan playing for the Yamuri Giants of the right. Japanese Central League. Tell us a little bit about, number one, what, what led to that, your decision to go over there, and a little bit about your experience playing in Japan. Uh, my decision to go over there, I, I got uh, non-tendered, you know, so I really got, I really didn't get offered a contract. And uh, the few offers I did get were like minor league invites from here. So, I mean, you know, it didn't take a, a, a rocket scientist to, you know the contract that they offered me I had a I think I had one of my daughters at the time uh, my oldest she's six right now but you know like I said to take a rocket scientist to, to figure out you know that was the best deal for me on the table right now and thinking back you know I, I figured that I'll go over there for a year or whatever and and you know have a great season and come back and uh, be able to play the big league obviously it didn't work out like that but over there was a great experience for me and my family you know my daughter was over there my fiance was over there at the time and you know it was a little different it was so far away from home that you know it was just a tough thing when I first got down there but um I'll say come you know come mid late May mid June I, I finally started to get kind of comfortable over there and uh, I was you know able to make a few adjustments and I just needed you know it was a trial year that first year for me and I think if I got offered a contract to go back over there I think I would have did much better but um, obviously I didn't get that and you know I was at the time I was what mid 33 34 so I was getting older and uh, you know the writing was on the wall you know and I'm looking back in hindsight but even over there I gave it all I can I, I had and um our team finished in first place. You know, unfortunately, in the playoffs, we we didn't get the job done. But it was a great experience um, on my career, and uh, I wouldn't change it at all. Now, do you feel like uh, maybe? You know, and, and I don't know. I don't know how it ends up working out. But did you feel like maybe you could have stuck it out in Japan for another year or two, or did you feel you really your first chance to come back to the major leagues? You're going to take it. No, well, I feel I definitely could have stuck it out, especially after that first year. But um, like I said, we didn't win, and uh, I don't. I rubbed the manager the wrong way. He was looking for more of a uh, guy that you know I guess put up great numbers in the first year. And you know this game is all about adjustments. Um, 
the thing that sucked about what happened to me. You know, you get four foreigners over there, which we had a Latin player and we had a, uh, another American guy, which those two guys got hurt. So it kind of just left me to kind of fend for myself, you know, <laughs> with my interpreter, obviously who was Japanese. And uh, it just, it, it, it was just a tough situation for me. You know, those guys went down with significant, significant injuries and, um, you know, I just, I, I played well, but, you know, obviously I, I didn't play as well up to, as well enough up to their standards. So, you know, they didn't offer me back and, you know, that was that. And so you, you almost felt like you were kind of like a Tom Selleck in a Mr. Baseball kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty much, you know, um, like I said, the, the adjustments that I needed to make over there, I felt like I was making, but obviously the manager wanted to go in a different direction. And you know how baseball is. It's a business. And, you know, so if the brain trust and the front office and the ownership, you know, not on board with you, you know, there's pretty much nothing you can do. So, you know, I just took it as what it was. It was a great experience. And um, I moved on with my life. Now, yeah, you have, man. Now, listen, Damon, I want to thank you for having some time today. Uh, best of luck with everything you're doing with the uh, with the coaching now. And, listen, I hope to get you on the program sometime in the near future. Hey, thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. And uh, you keep up the good work, man. Hey, thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. That was Damon Hollins. Damon, of course, you know, involved in coaching now after a playing career, you know, spanned about maybe 10, 12 years, a little bit of experience in Japan, the minors coming up with the Braves and uh, playing with the Tampa Bay Rays. So this is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the day. Be back with a little more going on after this. MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of internet radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day, David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454 and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop.
Welcome back. Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli finishing up what has been an exciting first hour already. We've uh, we've uh, done interviews with Buddy Bianca Lana, Damon Holland. Second hour is going to be just as good uh, with former Major League catchers Matt Walbeck, Chad Moeller, and former uh, Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher Bob Friend are all going to be part of the program in the second hour. So a lot of great things going on. And... Let's be honest, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk baseball. And obviously, reminding you guys, you can tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. And that's, uh, you know, P-I-E-L-L-I, the last name. Tweet at me anytime during the duration of my show. I promise I will uh, respond and reply to every tweet. Uh, that's mentioned at me during the duration of my broadcast. But uh, we, we got into a little bit. I'm just going to finish this up real quick before we get into the other subjects and different things going on in Major League Baseball. We were talking about the Toronto Blue Jays, the Los Angeles Angels, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Blue Jays and why people didn't have as much faith in them. While some people said, listen, this team is built to win, I think the one thing that hurt the uh, Toronto Blue Jays more than anything was their injuries. Losing Jose Reyes, performing at the level that he was was an absolute disaster and ended up hurting that team in a, in a bad way. If Jose Reyes was healthy, who knows how the first part of the season would have turned out for the Toronto Blue Jays. And with Reyes coming back within hopefully another month or so, uh, if the Blue Jays can hang around, stay around the 500 mark, play a little better baseball than they are right now, then maybe they could still contend. But the one thing that has killed them is starting pitching. Their starting pitching has been horrible. Some could say that the correlation is between uh, John Farrell being the man manager there last year and going to Boston. Obviously, under Farrell last year as the manager, you know him, the former Major League pitcher, former Major League pitching coach. The impact that he had on the on the young pitchers, particularly a Brandon Morrow. Obviously, you look at the results of Morrow and Mark Burley and you know Jay Happ before he was hurt, Josh Johnson getting hurt. Their starting pitching has not been very good. R.A. Dickey has been up and down. He is nowhere near the Cy Young Award winner he was last season. So that's a big step in the wrong direction direction for the Toronto Blue Jays, something that they have to totally change if they're going to have a chance to move forward um, and have, make anything out of this season. Obviously, it's been a loss to this point. Moving on to the Dodgers. Obviously, you talk about everything that's gone on from Matt Kemp struggling to Zach Greinke getting hurt and not pitching that great since coming back. And the guys that they brought over from Boston, Crawford and Gonzalez and Josh Beckett and the karma thing and everything that's happened with the Dodgers kind of uh, freely spending money again, you know, looking to fill needs with money and not necessarily looking as much as a cohesive unit, as you see with a lot of other teams that are contending and doing well this season, that may be the thing that's hurting the, the Los Angeles Dodgers. The bottom line is where they stand in the standings right now is unacceptable. And really, if you're looking at a team to make a move, to make a change at the helm as the manager, it could be the Los Angeles Dodgers. They have too much talent. They've spent too much money to be performing at a level that they are in a division that is winnable. You look at the San Francisco Giants. Yes, they've won two World Series in the last three years. You look at the Colorado Rockies, who have been a surprise. You look at uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks, who have done a very good job. Yes, there's competition in that division, but not competition to a point that you don't think the Los Angeles Dodgers can compete with it. And that's where I have a little bit of an issue, a little bit of a problem. There is too much talent. On this, on this team to be performing where they are. And as great of a guy as Don Mattingly may be, as 
great of a hitter as he was in his prime with the New York Yankees and as much as he has established himself as a coach and now as a manager with the Los Angeles Dodgers, no matter who's at the helm of this team, they're going to have to be held responsible. And I think I think you look at other situations and other possibilities of managers being on a hot seat, but the bottom line is if the Los Angeles Dodgers with a healthy Greinke now, I know Matt Kemp is out, but in a position that they're in right now, injuries aside, if they don't turn this around soon, they are going to have to make a change when it comes to the manager. It doesn't matter if it's Manningly or anybody else that's in that same position. But the Dodgers are going to have to make a move to justify what they've done in spending this money and changing this team to a point that they have. Somebody's got to take the fall for it. And like I've said with the Mets and Terry Collins, if things don't get better this year, if they don't show enough promise going into 2014 then unfortunately the sword is going to fall on Terry Collins and he is going to have to bite the bullet same thing with Don Manigley the Dodgers are going to have to change this get themselves in a good position and start playing some good baseball or Don Manningly is going to lose his job. And moving forward, you got the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, who I think are in a different situation in spite of similar results. You look at Mike Sosha and everything that he has established as a manager. He won a World Series in 2002. He has been a guy that you could trust to run a team. He has been considered one of the top managers in Major League Baseball. Even last year, after such a poor start that the Angels got themselves off to, it, it, it changed for the better. Obviously, with the recalling of Mike Trout and putting him out there in center field and everything that Mike Trout did, you have to have some faith that the Angels will be able to turn this around. They've played some good baseball over the last 20 games. They've played some good baseball over the last week or two. They've shown that they are getting themselves better and should be able to compete in the American League West. The one thing that's against you, yes, they were an absolute favorite. In my opinion, it wasn't a team that was better in the American League West than the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And they have not gotten a job done. So to this point, it's been a failure. Similar to the Dodgers, similar to the Toronto Blue Jays. Three situations they got to right themselves. But like with Manningly, with the Dodgers, and with John Gibbons with the Toronto Blue Jays, Mike Sosha actually is not on a hot seat. And, and could you see Artie Marino or Jerry Depoto make a splash and say, listen, we got to change something here with the manager and we got we to gotta go in a different direction? I think it's possible. I think they may do that to save their own ass. But the bottom line is this is Jerry Depoto's decision to bring in Josh Hamilton. It was his decision to bring in Albert Pujols, obviously with some influence from owner Marino. They are going to feel more of the wrath than the general manager and the owners of the Los Angeles Dodgers because now they put this team together and now it's the manager that hasn't gotten a job done with Mike Sosha. Mike Sosha has proven he could win several different times winning all those division titles in a postseason appearance in a World Series the whole thing everything that he has done with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim he has a track record Don Manningly John Gibbons they do not and I know John Gibbons had, a, had a, a, a previous run with the Toronto Blue Jays, but what did it net him? He has no winning experience as a major league manager, but Mike Sosha does. And that's why I think when it comes down to it, the managers that will feel the wrath of what's going on with their team and their team's not getting the job done will be Mattingly and Gibbons and not Mike Sosha. And I, I do think that I do expect 
and uh, you know call me maybe maybe I'm being a little too naive here but I do think that all three teams will right the ship before the end of the season will they all be in the playoffs yeah maybe not Maybe one of them misses, maybe two of them miss, maybe all three of them don't end up in the playoffs this season. But I do think in all three situations, you will see the ship righted in Toronto and in both Los Angeles teams. You've seen signs. The Blue Jays had a good week or so. I think the Blue Jays pitching will come around. I think Jose Reyes will have an impact on his team when he's healthy. With the Dodgers, I think it will be a matter of what they're going to get out of Matt Kemp once he's back and healthy. And the one that scares me the most, I got to be honest with you, you may not have agree with me a lot of people may say Toronto but the Dodgers are one that scare me the most because you have a lot of moving pieces with a lot of veteran players that haven't all played together at one time. Hanley Ramirez was acquired last season, uh, you know, a little more than halfway through the season. You look at guys like Greinke. You look at guys like Carl Crawford and Gonzalez and Josh Beckett. And let's be honest, when Josh Beckett was healthy this year, he was terrible. Who knows if you're going to be able to get anything out of Josh Beckett. I'll tell you, one guy that's pitched phenomenal for him, and I hope he gets a chance to pitch in the All-Star team this year, that's Hun Jin Ru. He threw a shutout in his last appearance. He has been phenomenal. He is every bit the deal that he was expected when the Dodgers paid all that money to bid for him in the first place. And I give the guy a lot of credit. He has come out there, and in spite of Greinke, in spite of Josh Beckett, and all the hype surrounding those guys, and oh yeah, Clayton Kershaw is still part of that pitching staff, still their best pitcher, and still a candidate to win the Cy Young this year. And Hun Jin Ru has gone out there and has pitched like a top-of-the-rotation pitcher. Another reason why the expectations will be high for the Los Angeles Dodgers to turn this thing around. But you look at their rotation with Greinke in it now. Maybe he needs a couple starts to kind of get himself back in a rhythm, the broken collarbone, the whole thing. But with Cranky and with Kershaw and with Rowe, you've got three, uh, a top three that I have a hard time competing with in other teams in Major League Baseball. You look at the Philadelphia Phillies with Cliff Lee and Cole Hamels. Roy Halladay's hurt right now, so it's hard to put that big three against what you got there with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And of course, you, you need Granke to step it up a notch. You need Granke to pitch at the level of Rue and even Clayton Kershaw. The, you, know, you look at what's going on with San Francisco. Lincecum has taken a step back. He hasn't been the same. Really, the only other team that you could think that has a legitimate top three that's that damn good is the Detroit Tigers with Verlander and Scherzer and Annabelle Sanchez. Throw Doug Fister in there. But, but I do, do think those things are interesting to have to be looked at. We're going to take our five-minute break from the first part of this program. We'll be back. Uh, like I said, I want to thank Buddy Biancalan. I want to thank Damon Hollins and take it right into the second hour. we got a lot more baseball talk on the Passball Show right here on EMTR Radio Network. Back after this.